Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Tom Chatham, chairman of the board of Chatham Created Gems. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City, once again at the JCK World Headquarters. World Headquarters, I love it when you say that. I get this impression of a very tall building. How you doing, okay? I'm doing all right. I still am dealing with, I, yeah, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice, a, a raging sinus infection, but I just got prescribed my third round of meds that I'm about to start and I'm feeling optimistic. So I guess optimism okay. is a good thing. Yeah, I was in Miami last week for the sort of start of Art Basel with Cartier for its Time Unlimited exhibition. I briefly mentioned in our last podcast, really anything Cartier does is usually pretty top notch. And I'm really glad I went, except for the planes. The planes were really kind of a difficult experience for somebody with sinus pressure. And I'd never had that experience. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane and had that descent where your ears are trying to adjust to the air pressure, but people warned me and I sort of blew them off thinking, oh yeah, I'm fine. You know, I've never really encountered that situation, but holy moly, let me tell you, it's not fun. Aren't you supposed to like chew gum? Don't they say chew gum helps? They do. And I did all that. In the end, what I did on my second plane journey on the return was just to bite earplugs, literally earplugs to block the ears from experiencing that pressure. And that did the trick. But I hear everyone's sick all around. Everybody kind of I talk to. So I think it's been one of those years where everybody comes down with something. Other than that, I mean, it's just getting ready for the holidays. And we're just on the brink of Christmas. And we'll have to do a full roundup of what we're hearing from the retail and do a postmortem on the holiday in early 24. But all signs as of coming out of Thanksgiving and Black Friday were that things were going better than expected for the jewelry category. Did you get any updates or news that might suggest otherwise, Rob? No, I think the wholesale people are still a little not happy, but I think retail's okay. It seems kind of up to expectations. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a blockbuster season, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Barring any disasters in the next 10 days or so. And I'm also, you know, every mid-December, basically, I start preparing a predictions feature for 2024. So I'm in the midst of pulling quotes from creatives around the industry about their expectations for mostly a creative forecast, colors, styles, motifs, designs, models, things like that, that people expect will either make a comeback or be popular. And I'm really excited to get people's answers in. It's always really exciting to, you know, talk to people who have their finger on the pulse of whatever part of the industry they're in and can distill those ideas and and share a a forecast. Because I think to me, that's really exciting when people can sort of prognosticate and then it ends up being true. Speaking of forecasters and and people who have their finger on the pulse, I do want to tee up our guest today, who I think is one of the true pioneers in this industry. I don't think you could really find somebody who holds that title better than Tom Chatham. Many people will know his name and know his legacy. He is the chairman of the board of Chatham Created Gems and Diamonds, Inc., one of the earliest, if not the earliest, creator of Created Gems. His father, Carol Chatham, of course, was, I guess, the original pioneer. And we'll hear about that, especially because Tom recently published a book in, in over the summer called The Chatham Legacy, an American Story that details 
his father's experiments in San Francisco and all the trials and tribulations that helped build the foundation for the lab-grown industry today, including diamonds, of course. So Tom, welcome. It's such a thrill to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, this is a big, I guess, a big year. You're looking back at this this legacy of your father's. We always start by just asking a background. So you're currently in Half Moon Bay. You told us before we started taping and you grew up in San Francisco. You know, I really never knew what it was that got your dad interested in this world of chemistry and science and gemstones. Can you give us a little background on that and then how you ended up entering the business? My father loved chemistry from a, an extremely young age. And I mean, 10 years old, maybe even before that. But it was definitely the beginning of a genius. All of his interests involved chemistry of one type or another. And he soaked it up like a sponge from school and got way ahead of his time. And at a time when you can do just about anything you wanted in chemistry, the drugstore that we commonly go to today is very strict in what they're allowed to give you. Back when I was growing up in the 50s, my father would explain to us, my brother and I, how to make various things just for fun. You know, fireworks and uh, rockets and little bombs and things that just aren't allowed today. Because we could go up to the corner drugstore, which was called The Chemist, and if you knew what to ask for, say, hey, I need a pound of charcoal, I need a pound of sulfur, I need a pound of uh, sodium nitrate. I mean, you could take out a building with those three components. That's what gunpowder is. Well, you can't do that anymore, unfortunately, because people abused it. So Carol Chatham wasn't into gemstones at all. He was into chemistry and research of what other people had done and what they had not accomplished or tried to do. He thought this was a two-week experiment to make an emerald that he had read had never been accomplished. So that's what got him started. And it took obviously more than two weeks, but he hung in there and it took uh, years. What really got him started in the gemstone search was reading about Moisson and his experiments to create diamond. And it, this was back in the 1880s, 1885. And he read that Moisson did this experiment to create diamond. And my one of the things my father taught me, and, and he practiced it himself very well, is never repeat mistakes or try and avoid them anyway because you're going to get the same results. So he theorized that Moisson was close, but not close enough. He had the right components. He had the right theories, high pressure, high temperature, carbon, nickel, iron. And what he did, we all later found out, was not diamond, but it was silicon carbide. So that was kind of a, an introduction to the gemstone world and what you can do and can't do. And so we turned toward emerald as one that had not been grown also. And he built a laboratory in his father's house in San Francisco. And he had to turn toward something else because in repeating Moisson's experiments and augmenting what he did in those experiments, he almost blew up his father's house. <laughs> and the police came... Uh, the neighbors came, windows were taken out across the street. He never found whatever he was trying to grow. It, it was just obliterated. But my father was, he was pretty wise for a young kid. He knew things could really hurt you if not done properly or if you didn't protect yourselves. But he was, he was warned by his father not to do anything like this again 
that brought the police and the neighbors down on him and to go some other direction. So that's what got him to look at Emerald as something that had not been done. He read about what Vernoy did with the ruby. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to grow the crystals themselves. And he just had a passion for chemistry. And uh, I don't know where it came from, but it was there. And did he find growing, you said he did emeralds first. Was there any difference in the way that he later produced sapphires and rubies and some of the other products? Actually, no. I'm asked this frequently, the differences in, in growth processes. And it's surprising to most people when I tell them, everything physically grows the same. Crystals grow the same. It's a preordained attraction of certain elements to each other that if you have the right environment and the right nutrients and chemicals, of course, that uh, it's fairly straightforward. Now, emerald does not require a high pressure and temperatures are pretty high, about 1100 degrees centigrade, but uh, not the 800 to 900,000 pounds per square inch that diamond requires, but they are basically growing the same way. So, Early on, when you were a kid, did your dad start roping you into these experiments that he was working on? Like, how did you get, I guess, enticed into following in his footsteps? I mean, growing up with my father was not a typical family experience because he was what you would call the the mad chemist, the mad scientist. I mean, he worked long hours in his laboratory, which was not in our home, and I didn't see him that often unless I was in trouble. Then I saw him. But I I worked in his lab when I was 12, 13, you know, cleaning up stuff and what have you. But I I had no idea what was going on, nor was it shared with me. I was just told that don't touch this or don't touch that or stay away from this. It basically started out as a need for a job. I had a choice when I was 20 years old. I was tired of going to college majored in math and chemistry, hoping that that was one of the rules of my father's home. He didn't care if you flunked English, gym, ancient history, whatever, political science. You better do well in math and chemistry. And that's what I put all my effort in, in high school and in college. But uh, I just came to the realization when I was about 20 years old that uh, I don't think this is for me. I was very good again, because of his training at fabrication, at building engines, hot rods, things like that in our garage. So I had a choice when I was 20 years old. I applied at United Airlines to come on as a apprentice mechanic, and I applied with my father. I asked him for a job, and he had zero employees. He worked all his life alone. My father said, okay, I'll let you work here. You're going to be an outside contractor. I don't want an employee. He had already gone through the fights with the FTC, and he wasn't enamored with the government and their regulations. So that's what I started as. And we worked very well together. And actually, it was a rebirth of our relationship as a father and son, because I really didn't have one before with him. But it was great. But I did find out that I did have a real strong feeling for marketing. And I kept pushing him to do this or that marketing wise. So over the years, you know, within about five years, I was running his laboratory and I was pretty good at it. So we expanded and kept expanding. I kept bringing him problems of marketing, not solutions, but problems that I foresaw because we were selling everything to one person outside the United States cash in advance. And and I did not like that. It was a great 
set up for my father. He could do all his research and not worry about sales. But I thought it was extremely dangerous. I said, what happens if this guy gets hit by a bus or, or plane crash or what have you? Where do we sell our stones? I said, you know, I don't think we should be so much in the dark. And I caused a lot of trouble. And without going into too much depth, one thing led to another and we ended up creating our own marketing company. What was the market for, was it just created emeralds at that point or? That's all we made was emerald. Uh, we started on Ruby in about, in about 1965. He had already played around with it and it was, took quite a few years to develop the Ruby market. It's a flux Ruby that was identical to natural, not like flame fusion Ruby. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. I was talking to some people and I was telling them that you're going to be on the podcast today. And one of the things they said was you're one of the few wholesale companies in the trade that your name is really kind of a brand. Everybody knows you talk about a Chatham Emerald. Everybody knows what it is. You don't even have to say created. Did that take a long time to develop? Oh, yeah. I in, in writing this book, I went through boxes and boxes of clippings of stories about Carol Chatham. He was on, he was in Ripley's Believe It or Not. And yeah. He was on TV. On TV. He was on You Asked For It. He was on What's My Line. But anyway, to answer your question about the, the notoriety, the name was perfect. I mean, I, I was once asked in a trade show, he said, the Chatham name is so good. Where did you get it? <laughs> and I said, well, I got it from my father. He said, well, where did he? I said, well, before you dig your hole any deeper, I said, that's our family name, Chatham. And it, it's a good name. And because my father was the first, it got repeated thousands of times in print. And a lot of the stories were corny. They were, you know, turning, you know, rags to riches, lead into gold type of baloney. But it, it still got the name out there. And it stuck. And those who came after him, good products, people like Gilson and Kishan. Funny story about the inventors of the Kishan Ruby, Nancy and Trueheart Brown. And they came to our house. My father asked Trueheart, he says, are you going to call your stone Brown Ruby? And Trueheart says, no, he laughed. He says, it's, no, it's going to be called Kishan. I don't even know where the word Kishan came from. But and that's another reason for the notoriety, because when you're first, you get a lot of attention. And when you're second, like Gilson was, Pierre Gilson out of France. He's not in the U.S., so he doesn't have the access to the U.S. media the way we did, or vice versa, the media access to us. And when you're third and fourth, fifth, I mean, it's you're like old news. So the names didn't stick. And it was one of the reasons I wrote the book is because all of these people, including my father, had passed away. And I was the last guy who was part of this project. And I'm one of the few left in the world that uh, can make that claim to fame. 
was there anything in your research or when you were actually putting the book together, any anecdotes or stories that you'd forgotten or that you perhaps had never heard that surprised you or, or you felt like were, I don't know, indicative of who your father was or what his legacy is? Uh, there's a lot of things that aren't in the book. Somebody just asked me that yesterday in the family. said, why didn't you put this part in or this part in? I said, you know what? A lot of things that I put in the book, the editor would come back and say, Tom, this is irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with your father and your work. And I said, well, it does. But And I had to fight to keep one chapter of, of Trip to Africa in there because I just wanted to give space to Harry Stubbard. And we traveled together over there and I didn't want to cut it out. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd say the book is 10% of what I've been through. Oh, One of the stories I enjoyed was, I guess there was a court case over what to call the gemstones. And of course, that's something people are still arguing about today, however many years later. And I think you said that it was the judge who came up with the name created? Yes. The FTC trial over the word cultured Give you a little background on that. And I, I can't say I blame the industry. When Mickey Moto brought out his cultured pearl in the 20s, the natural pearl industry fell apart. That wasn't just because of cultured pearls. I mean, the pollution and the Persian Gulf, the scarcity of natural pearls, a lot of things added up to the success of cultured pearls. Everybody could afford a string of cultured pearls, and it was very successful. So the big guys on Fifth Avenue did not want to see that happen with the emerald business. So somebody had friends in high places. And the FTC called up my father or wrote my father with a cease and desist letter. And they said, we've had no complaints about your product, but we don't want you to call it cultured. And just sign off on this and we'll disappear. My father was not going to sign off on it. And you have a choice. You can go to court in Washington, D.C., which we did. So the first part of the court case lasted only about six months, and it was over the definition of what a cultured material is and its accuracy in describing my father's emerald. So we had all the experts from GIA, you know. So the judge would ask them after many questions, what does Carol Chatham make? And every one of them had to say emerald. And the judge turned to the government's attorneys and said, who are these witnesses for? Are they for Chatham or the government? They all come out and they're saying he's making emerald. Then they got my father on the stand and he, he refused to divulge anything about his process. He says, you have no need to know how I do what I do. All you have to do is look at the product, examine the product, research the product, take it apart, what have you, and you will find out what it is. And everybody says, it's an emerald. And the judge says, well, we need to know for the good of society, how you make this, what it's made out of and how you do it. And my father looked at him and says, I refuse to give you my life's work for the satisfaction of my competitors on Fifth Avenue. And the judge says, you're in contempt of court. Carol Chatham, every day that you refuse to tell us, one year in jail and $5,000 fine. And my father says, well, you can put me in jail right now because I'm not telling you. And that was a big legal mistake on the part of the judge. He didn't have the power to do that. It wasn't a due process. You can keep secrets. So after a long silence, the judge said, I want counsels in my chambers Got in there and he told my father, he says, Mr. Chatham, we're not going to put you in jail, but I'm trying to get through this circus. We're not getting anywhere. So he asked the 
attorneys on both sides. He says, what did everybody conclude that Chatham creates? And they all said, well, emerald. And the judge says, Carol Chatham, why don't you use it, the word created emerald? And my fellow says, we never thought of it. And we explained to him we had hired professional linguists, you know, S.I. Hayakawa in San Francisco. But my father said to the judge, if we can use created, I'll sign off on your cease and desist on culture. No problem. And so it was fine. We went home very happy. We had to change the corporate name from Culture Gemstones, Inc. That's what Ed Coyne owned. We had to change the name of the product, of course, to Chatham Created Emerald on all business cards, all advertising, anything that it was printed on. So probably three months after this court decision came out, my father got another cease and desist letter, almost identical to the first one. We rescind our decision. You cannot use the term Chatham Created Emerald. Well, this was a different fight because proving we cultured the stone, we would have to divulge how we culture it. The fact that we created an emerald was pretty black and white, and it either is an emerald or it's not an emerald. And believe it or not, that took three years and a lot more experts. And finally, after three years, we get a letter that says, we've decided that Chatham Created Emerald satisfies the criteria that we've established, and thank you very much. That's it. I mean, four years in Washington, D.C., with Washington, D.C. attorneys, New York attorneys, San Francisco attorneys. I mean, it cost a fortune. It took a lot out of my father. I know it did. Well, since we're we're already short on time, sadly, because we clearly we could talk to you for hours, but maybe it, it would be interesting to hear about the differences between introducing lab-created gemstones and lab-created diamonds and why you think the industry continues to have such a debate over lab-grown diamonds. I mean, it seems like they've accepted the colored stone created gems a long time ago. Why so much consternation still? Well, I think number one is that the diamond industry is so much bigger than the colored stone industry. I think 85% of jewelry sales involves diamonds and 15% or less involves colored stones. So right there, you've got you know, this huge audience, and it wasn't the same with colored stones. Colored stones was, and still is, very fragmented. Even though in the U.S. we have the AGTA, they don't really speak for one individual gemstone. It's just the concept in general about natural colored gemstones. So this is the first time that Diamond has had a competitor. Colored stones have had a lot of competitors over the years, and, and, and they weren't quite as reactive, I guess. I was asked to give a talk in Dubai in, in July, and they wanted me to give a keynote speech. And they said, listen, we need help. The diamond producers of the world, the lab-created diamond producers, they need help. They're running this product down to the bottom in prices, and maybe you can give them some advice that will help. And I said, they're not going to listen to me. They didn't listen to me in 1995 when they took emerald down to $5 a carat, and we just walked away from it, and most of them went broke. I gave them the advice, and I said, you know, the general public is really embracing this product. They love it. It's opened up a whole new area, marketing-wise, for people who want a, a nice size diamond, and they made it affordable. And I even told the audience, I said, you know, you guys control the world, and you're just killing each other for no reason at all. Do you want to talk about where you can get the book? Chatham.com is where you can buy the book. It's $90 plus postage. Depends on where it is. And that's the problem, shipping to India and places like that. But it's been well-received. 
I think it's well-written with the help of a lot of people and high quality, a lot of pictures, a lot of things in the book. My father would have a fit if he saw them. Because one of the reasons we didn't have many competitors is we didn't have any leakage of information. And that's what's happened in the diamond industry. There's too much, too much leakage. You know, there's a lot of pictures in there that he would be upset with. But put them out I'm there. I'm sure he's very proud that he's remembered. May, may he rest in peace. He's proud that you've shared his story and that you've continued his legacy. And yeah, that you're still out there sharing your thoughts about how this marketplace with these different created products can coexist with the natural I'm sure there'll there'll be a time when we can revisit this. There's so much to ask, and I'm sorry that we have no time left. Yeah, probably the only thing I'd like to add, just if we could work together with them, and how could we work together with them? It's kind of like we work together with the natural emerald and ruby people. We ignore each other. Just ignore each other. (laughs) Is that your final bit of advice? I think that's good advice. I've been uh, suggesting that for a while. I like it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a lot of fun and great stories and a really interesting book everybody should check out. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.